0: Hello there, this is Terry, and welcome to the 25th episode of the Animation Industry Podcast. Today I'm chatting with David Braun, who is the Creative Director at Open the Portal Studio, which is an animation studio specializing in stop-motion, and some of their recent work has included TV spots for Rick and Morty, and they've also produced a whole bunch of projects for Disney, Katy Perry, Mattel, eBay, and so many others. But what's interesting is that after five years of creating professional work for outside clients, the studio is completely shifting focus this year to work on their own original concepts. And they've got this pitch for this animated anthology that they showed me, and it's absolutely phenomenal, and I can't wait to see it get made. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And as we speak in this podcast, they are pitching it around to studios and streaming services. So a little bit more about David. He started animating with his family's home movie camera, when he was just about nine years old and that's when he discovered stop-motion and I feel like that story is pretty relatable to everybody that I've talked to in stop-motion myself included and David actually had a turning point after high school because instead of pursuing animation he started pursuing a career in music with his band Great Glass Elevator who ended up getting signed to Atlantic Records but through the process of making their own original animated stop motion music videos, he decided that animation was going to be his career path instead of music. So, David attended the experimental animation program at CalArts from 2009 to 2013. And then he went on to study for a year at FAMU in Prague, where he won a contest through MTV as a student to interview Tim Burton, which helped inspire and kickstart his career. And since then, he's worked on a whole bunch of animated commercials and TV shows. Now, before we dive in, this episode is sponsored by the awesome team at Startastudio.com. Startastudio is a new online school focused on the business side of animation. They have both free and paid courses and online community and downloads to help you succeed in your animation career and build your own cool, creative and viable animation studio. All the content is written and presented by experienced animator and studio founder, John Draper, and you can use the unique discount code AIP as an animation industry podcast in the checkout to save 20% on their popular pro studio startup course. So whether you're looking to up your freelance game or plan and launch your own animation company, check out startastudio.com. Now let's jump into the chat. So David, how are you doing today? I'm
1: doing good, Terry. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so we have a lot to chat about because you, uh, you know, you've you've been in stop motion for a while. You have your own studio, but I'm uh, I want to start back when you graduated at Cal Arts and you immediately pitched a show idea to Frederator. Uh, can you can you just start with that experience?
1: Yeah, so we had uh, right away after graduating, we kind of just jumped in hot and really wanted to make get an original idea out there, and we. We had stars in our eyes, and we thought, like, oh, we're going to totally just, like, sell an idea right away and jump into it. Um, and we did get lucky enough to get a few pitches just right out of school. It all it started with uh, the Nickelodeon Shorts program, which they do a program where they accept pitches for one- to two-minute content. And from there, we were able to pitch to them, and we got really excited, so we just started reaching out to people. And we got in contact with Frederator, and um, we, we did a pitch for... Um, for Eric over at Frederator and we were super nervous but it ended up going really well. He was it's a very weird idea. We we've uh, we've pitched it to quite a few people now and w- the reaction we almost always get is like I love this. This sounds so great. I have no idea how I'm going to sell it. Um it's a very to us we like toned toned down the weirdness of the pitch. It's it's a it's a show called Brain Fudge. Um, to them, it seemed really weird still. so, But we, we pitched to Frederator, and Eric really loved the pitch, and he even told us, like, you guys have a great vibe, you have a great pitch, you had a good chemistry and everything. And um, that show, it was like a, a mini series, kind of like an over-the-garden-wall format, that it was like telling this long story of the arc of a bunch of episodes. And he said, we love this, but we're really looking for this, like, one-episode-at-a-time content. And so if you guys ever have another idea... Uh, in the future, I'd love to hear it again.
0: So, so what exactly is this pitch about, Brain Fudge? Like, can you share some of the details? Like, why is it so weird?
1: Yeah. So, Brain Fudge is it's set in a future far, far away from ours. Um, Where we first come into the world, and it, it's this sort of a Mad Max type of a place. It's this just really desolate. Wa- it's actually the people call it wasteland. It's like this super desolate world and everything in, in the stop motion, like everything in this world would be very textured, all like natural textures and things. And you you can tell that it's it's you know post 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 post-apocalyptic. There's they're just scraping the bottom of the barrel to get through. And you meet this girl Z, who everybody in this wasteland is just pretty despondent and they're all the the whole society is pretty depressed, but they're just slugging through. And she's trying to change things, but nobody's really listening to her. And there's a second world that none of them are able to enter. It's just this sort of like, you know, Thunderdome, barbed wire, sinister looking. If you The the Rick and Morty episode when there's all the little Mortys getting tortured on the outside of that thing. Like, it's the most sinister looking place. It's just this massive dome. And they know it's called Beautiful World for some reason. And these uh, once a month these ships come out and grab all like from the the, whoever's the newborn kids all of the crops all the like the resources including the kids are taken from wasteland into beautiful world not all of them they're scanned for some reason it's uh they're always looking for positive things so people like the happiest kids are the ones that are taken and so that's a big part of why everyone's very depressed and despondent there but so Z is this main girl that we met and uh, where the show begins, she's kind of had enough. So we like established this relationship between Wasteland and Beautiful World and Z decides she's going to do something about their situation. Oh, and also she her little sister, who's very, very young, is one of the kids that gets taken into Beautiful World. Z never gets picked because she's no fun. She just doesn't even understand really how to have fun. And so the robots scan. The robots that pull the people and they scan them and so her sister was very fun so she breaks in to this horrific sinister place and she follows the robot in and sneaks in and is just dropped into what we could describe as like almost an infinite feeling disney world it's like actually this candy colored beautiful paradise in there and there's just everything kids could want. It's, it's like Pleasure Island and Pinocchio, just on every steroid known to man. There's like crazy candy and rides and all kinds of stuff going on. And uh, Z's trying to make heads or tails of this because she's never seen anything like this before. And um, what, what we end up finding out in the show, she notices all of the kids in Beautiful World have these sort of udders on their head, like, uh, like cow udders. And at the end of every day, so the kids like, are encouraged to have as much fun as possible. And then there's these like big sinister dudes called the milkmen that just look like giant fifties, like smiling milkmen, but they only have like one kind of face smiling and they gather all the kids at the end of the day. And then they like have milking machines that milk this substance in their brain called mind milk, which is what they produce when they have fun. And that's like the fuel that keeps this world going. Um, so the, the, the show is about, she meets this kid, Max, who's like the greatest Mind Milk producer in Beautiful World, but uh, one of the other things, at Beautiful World, w- in Beautiful World, once kids become teenagers and stop having fun, like they become all cynical, they uh, no one knows what happens to them, but they mysteriously disappear, so the kid Z meets is becoming a teenager, and um, and he knows he's going to have to leave soon, and so... The, the show is about the two of them banding together and trying to figure out what's going on in this world. And I think part of, like, the point that always uh, in pitches got harped on, because we were originally pitching this as a show for kids. And we thought, like, oh, this is such a fun idea for kids. So Max, he's supposed to be producing this mind milk, and he's becoming a teenager, so he's, like, becoming less and less fun, and he's running out of it. So he's trying to get it from other kids in Beautiful World. So he makes these like shady deals to get their mind milk and say it's his so he can stay there. And there's an image in our pitch deck of this little kid like handing Max a vial of mind milk. And he's looking over his shoulder all sketchy. And it kind of looks like kids doing a drug deal. Um, and I, in one specific pitch, the guy was like, uh, is this drug dealing in a kid's show? We're like, no, it's – but um, – yeah. So anyway, that was a, a way more detailed than necessary description of uh, brain fudge. And we decided to shift it to, to pitch it as an adult show. But this was like we were you know, we were just out of school and kind of trying to figure out like how to pitch a show and what it was all about. And that's actually an idea we're still very excited about and hope to create one day when we're able to have uh, have someone willing to take a pretty big risk on a show like that.
0: Well, yeah, I can tell you're still really passionate about it. And thanks thanks for sharing that that whole pitch. That was great. Um, sure. But so Over the Garden Wall, I wouldn't say is for kids either. And it's not for adults either. And it does have those really weird moments, too, in a similar sense. Do you, do you think you could, it has like your brain, uh, brain fudge, did you say it was brain called? Brain fudge, yeah. Brain fudge would have more... Uh, like stickability now that over the garden wall has come over because because like you started off being like over the garden wall as an example
1: i do th- that that was a big comp we used and we actually even met with one of the writers of over the garden wall and and showed him our idea i think part of what because that generally like in some studios were even like we would really love to do this idea but it's a big risk because of how we Weird it is. Over the garden wall, because uh, it, it was an artist who had built some reputation from adventure time, it was a less of the studio, I think, was a little bit more willing, like, okay, this is this is a, a something that happens a lot with animation for some reason is like riding the line between like it's a little too scary for kids, but a little too kiddy for adults, where does it land? And they were willing to take that risk, I think, because they they had this artist that had some um, had already done some some adventure time stuff. And that's where we're at right now, like with the pitches we're doing now is like focusing on ideas that are a little bit more easy to get, like that we could do um, single episodes. And that was one thing that people responded to us a lot too, Is it's like, it's a bigger commitment to do a whole huge arc versus like starting out with like standalone shorts and episodes. So that's, that's what we're focusing on now. And I do think uh, over the garden wall is one of our, biggest inspirations and we just have nothing but respect for that show and the people who made it and that's if if we could ever be like lumped in a category with them it'd be a dream come true
0: yeah so well what's i'm interested like what has kept your passion for this idea even after it got rejected so many years ago what's kept your passion alive for it all this time
1: um I, i think a big part of it was that the nature of like of those meetings was it wasn't a single time like we don't think this is a very viable idea or we don't really like it. It was always like, this is awesome. We just don't know how we can really sell it right now. And so, I mean, beyond that, we've just always, I can envision the whole world and series and character in my head, all the characters. And it's just, it, it would be the ultimate, one of the ultimate shows for me to make. I just, I, I know it would be so much fun to watch, at least for me. And, I think that's the best advice I've always gotten is, like, do what you're excited about. Um, We have had other pitches that did not go over well, but this one, although it never got picked up, the pitch always went over very well. So that gave us a lot of encouragement that it was something worth revisiting in the future.
0: So, well, if this is like your ultimate show and you have had other pitches that haven't gone very well and, and you are pitching other things, do you feel the same sort of excitement or passion for these other pitches? Because you you also said that you're trying to create things more tailored to what a, a production company or a studio would want, I guess.
1: We're trying to work in a, a format that would work better. I wouldn't say, I don't think, I don't think we really quite have the capability, I, ironically, uh, that we don't really have the capability of making something tailored to what studios want that brain fudge actually was our attempt to do that because the uh, the show we're pitching now was our first idea and it, it this is this is another we're working with a management company now and it's super helpful because we realize for me especially there's a disconnect between what i think is like oh that's gonna really go over well or that's gonna be too weird the idea we're pitching now seemed like it seemed too weird to us at the time. And so we're like, when we had the opportunity to do the Nickelodeon shorts pitch, we're like, let's come up with something that's more like easy to get and more fun and a studio, an easier sell for a studio. And we, that's when we came up with brain fudge and uh, it was like, this is cool, but this is so weird. And then when we m- made the deal with our management company, we brought them like a list of all our ideas and they picked this one that we're pitching now which initially we thought was too out there and they were like no this is actually a really good picture right now and it, it is it, it's it's worked out timing wise in an amazing way that um there's just there's a big return to classic animation right now warner brothers just ordered 200 new looney tunes shorts disney's doing a big new push with mickey again so it's like that character driven short approach is is around right now so it's worked out really nice and that was another reason they go oh this is a good format for you guys to pitch right now
0: gotcha i do want to ask about the pitch that you're talking about but you also i want to just backtrack a bit too because you also said you have a couple failed pitches but before that even how did you come out of school and just start contacting people that would be interested in a pitch from a fresh student like how did you end up getting those contacts
1: the very first one the nickelodeon one it it was an email that just went out to, I think they, they hit up a lot of animation students, and I was a student at CalArts at the time, and it's just like, Nickelodeon Shorts program, we're, uh, we're um, accepting pitches, and I think, like the show The Loud House, there's a, they have a few shows that have, I think even Pickle and Peanut, were developed from this program, where students pitched a two-minute short, Nickelodeon tried it out, and then they used that to decide if they wanted to make a show. So we developed the pitch brain fudge was a pre-existing idea, but we turned it into a pitch for that. And once we had that, um, we, we just really reached out to as many contacts as we could find. I'm trying to remember. Oh, so the we pitched cartoon network. Um, I, I was literally at a Cal arts end of the year screening. They do a big, like most schools, you know, do a big end of the year screening to show all the work. And so I was at a student screening and I ended up, uh, my mentor and teacher, Stephen Kyoto, who is an incredible animator, human being. Look him up. He's the best. Um, C-H-I-O-D-O, Kyoto. He uh, he just said, like, oh, hey, here's this woman from Cartoon Network. We've done some work with them. And I started chatting with her, and I said, yeah, we just we just did this pitch for Nickelodeon Shorts Program. She said, oh, well, why don't you come pitch it at Cartoon Network? And invited us to pitch it. So we took that one. And then um, the Frederator pitch, it was – I think – think we reached out to them through our friend she was a classmate of mine um she was a master student when i was at calarts but kirsten lapore who did the hey stranger the the animation of the little butt guy like looking yeah and she, she had done like an amazing um uh stop motion bumper for them that was like a guy with a jackhammer
0: yes and, i know
1: yeah and so a big basically like the foot in the door we got was Nickelodeon and through that, we just, it was all connections and networking. And we just went through every contact we had and emailed, and we're like, let's just cold email as many people as we can. And um, those, we started to build relationships with those where it's like, even if people weren't interested in the pitch, they would say, oh, we can see you guys are doing cool work. We would be interested to hear another pitch. And a lot of them will be circling back around to with Psycho Psalms that we're working on right now and pitching to them too. But that was, it's one thing, and I, I did a lot of internships in college, I just recommend more than anything to students out there, like don't stay insulated, uh, talk to your teachers, like meet people in the community, it just the relationships I made during school were really how I was able to pitch, and how a huge part of where we were able to find work for the studio too.
0: Nice. So what what exactly are you, when you came out of school and you had a pitch, what physical assets did you create to pitch that
1: for the first pitch we did um the very first one it was just storyboards uh just tons of drawings and we pitched it with that and then so storyboards
0: like you came out with an episode
1: yes we well because the very first one was just for a two minute short so i boarded it all out just really simply and um We basically built assets every step of the way. So at first, it was just the drawings. Then we decided to make a couple puppets. And so, just during our spare time, we weren't doing jobs. I started, we we were working out of an apartment in Glendale at the time. Um, It was before we got this studio space, and we just like, we called ourselves Open the Portal. We were working out of a one bedroom apartment. And I put together a couple puppets, and that's what. that was basically all we had at the beginning. And then um, we, when we, once we got this space and we decided we wanted to keep pitching Brain Fudge, we, we had put it on hold for a while, but we started working with a writer and uh, we, we found a great artist to do some story art for us. And then for our pitch, we had one of my favorite things. I'll go grab it really quick. It's right around the corner. Sure. So, I've, I've always been a big fan of briefcases. I love carrying them around. Um, I love kind of, like, having, I don't know, just, like, job things is what I would call them, maybe. I, like, feel like I, feel like I have, like, an official job when I have a briefcase. So, I always would carry them, and we had the idea, like, what if we built, like, we put the pitch in the briefcase, and so... I haven't opened this in a long time this this was the briefcase we took on the pitch and you can see it's already missing its handle and stuff but we basically built this to take so we would like slide it out on the table and be like and here's the world
0: uh. <laughs> that we're
1: going to show you in brain fudge and so it's this oh like, my
0: gosh full pop-up little world
1: inside of the briefcase are and, those uh, giant
0: lips in the middle <laughs>
1: yeah oh it's,
0: wow
1: when it's actually functioning uh, for, for pitches, it, it lights up and makes sound also. What? That was like, the, we would bring it in, and we'd have, like set this briefcase, then we'd do the pitch, and then that was like, either at the beginning or the end, depending on the pitch we were doing, we'd be like, and voila. Um, and that was really fun, and it was really effective uh, in, in the pitching process. So that, that was the final asset we made for Brain Fudge.
0: OK, so storyboards, your personality, and uh, briefcase.
1: <laughs> and two puppets.
0: And two puppets, right, right, right. So you were living out of an apartment, and you weren't working, and you were just working on pitches right out of school, like.
1: No, so we were doing everything we could to meet ends meet right out of school. Um, we both, so at, at first, Micah, who is our uh, um, exec producer, he and I, he went to Art Center, I went to Cal Arts, and we worked on our final project together, fourth year, and we decided to do, start open the portal with a cup with a Barrett. Slagle, who does all of our sound, and um, we um, immediately, we, we M- Micah was living in this apartment, and it was like, he, he was with his, his wife, they had the b- bedroom, and then I slept in the living room, and it was a wood floor, which was great, because we could use it as a stage, so when we got a job, we would flip my mattress up, and we would, like, build a little set there in the room, like, in the living room of the apartment, and we'd, like, duct tape cardboard boxes up over the windows and stuff. Um, but so we were doing any little freelance jobs we could find. There's a, a few still on our website. Um, my cousin owned a pizza restaurant called Pizza Guru in Santa Barbara. And he's like, hey, I'll give you guys a couple thousand bucks to make an animated promo for us. We did a lot of spec work. And uh, we were also movie, working for a moving company. So like on the side, Micah and I were like doing freelance moving jobs and just he was doing some photography. We do wedding videos whatever we could do to keep enough money to pay our bills so that we could keep doing the pitches and keep doing animation.
0: Wow. That sounds really stressful. How, like, how did it, did you, how did you, how did that experience feel? Just like this gear grinding, looking for pitches, getting freelance work, living in a very small, tight space.
1: It was very intense. Um, and a lot of days, like we'd, we would just spend we – w- we made these huge spreadsheets of, like, here's all the studios we want to work with. Here's all the ad agencies we might be able to get a commercial with. Here's all this. And there were a lot of days that we just sat for hours just sending cold emails to literally thousands of people. Um, and it was a little claustrophobic, but I do have to say at the same time, it, it, was, it was really fun because um, – we were just—I don't know—we were really just in it to win it. We were really excited about it, and we knew we had something we were very proud of. And um, it—you know—it definitely felt like something we had to earn, um, <laughs> and it was very stressful at times. It still is, you know, it just in a different way. But um, but yeah, that was there was—it was very intense during the time that we were shooting and doing everything out of the apartment.
0: Wow. Well, you, you've also run your own studio for the last five years and uh, congratulations on that. But how is how has that changed that, uh, you know, that reaching out to thousands of people and working in a small studio space? How has that changed over time for you?
1: Well, the thing that's changed. So at the beginning, like there were I think right now we're in a place where we've built a lot of great relationships. We've had a lot of great clients. We've uh, we know a lot of people at studios and things like that. Um, But being that we're still like an independent studio, there's a big curve between like in an independent creators and then a huge ad agency or like a huge media production company. And we've the, the struggles or the challenges we face right now are figuring out like where we fit in between those worlds, um, it's like we're too big to be just like a freelance, a little freelance studio, but we're too small to be a giant media production studio. So it's just figuring out. We we have expanded pretty pretty big compared to what we were in before. We this is a a giant Quanzit hut, it's like an old airplane hangar, basically that's been built out with stages and offices and. Um, it's it's hard to strike the balance of like like we've gotten we've had jobs and I think if we ever get a show we don't have enough space here to shoot that but when we're not doing a job we don't need even the amount of space we have so it's like it's a little bit of a struggle just figuring out what the balance is
0: hmm. and that uh-huh. was a big
1: part of our I, I'm, I know we'll get to that a little bit later but that was a big part of our decision to really focus on developing creative projects and not at first we were trying more like we're going to be a big commercial production house and use that to fund our projects but now it's like no we're really we really want to focus on that development part
0: okay well yeah we definitely want to talk about that so let's just backtrack back to those pitches so the second pitch you uh you you had you said it was kind of a, a failure what was that one all about so
1: we i i can't remember how exactly it came about but we had the opportunity um to pitch to frederator again we'd already pitched some brain fudge and we had pitched brain fudge out a little bit and um i i think they just said hey we're like we're looking for pitches again and so because our brain fudge pitch had gone so well with them and they had said you know that like this was such a great pitch you guys have good charisma it's really exciting we kind of got like oh yeah we can we, we got this like let's we'll come up with a new idea it, and they were saying, we're doing pitches in about two weeks. And we're like, oh, we can come up with something for sure. So we booked a pitch without having an idea developed yet. And then we just spent those. We, we were in a s- space where like we had made enough from the moving company that we didn't have to work for a couple weeks. So we're like, let's just go all in. And we came up with this idea called the portal in Bob's garage. Bob, <sighs> yeah. is, Bob is a character who exists here at Open the Portal. He's a real human being. And uh, we've worked with him in some capacity for, like, 15 years. He's an old friend, a mentor. He used to be the producer for our band. And he's indescribably unique, uh, this guy. I, I couldn't do him any justice. It, we, we might have a podcast one day and have him on it just so he can speak for himself. Very he, – he's – you know, like Chuck Norris. There, there's all these like, Chuck Norris jokes and the most interesting man in the world, the Dos Equis guy. Bob's like both of those, but total it's real. Like his stories are just unbelievable. So anyway, we came up with this whole pitch where he like, cause um, Bob's garage was where I met Micah way before we were both in school. I would do my, um, I was roommates with Bob when he was producing the band. I rented a room at his place and I, the garage, they didn't use it. So I would make animation in there. And so we came up with this idea that was like set in that time and Bob's garage actually had a portal in it. And Bob was like this mystical, like, sci-fi wizard sage guy that would, like, we would... Be, it was, like, kind of like home improvement. They go to Wilson, like, oh, I've got this problem. And he gives him advice. But Bob would give us advice by, like, taking us into this magical realm through the portal in his garage. And Bob's, like, an old hippie, like... He's, he's kind of a, a hair metal hippie. He's, like, a hippie, but he was into, like like crazy hair metal and he was in all these hair metal bands. So, so we kind of had, had that idea and we brought it to, um, Frederator. And we were just like, we were pretty pumped up. We're like, this is, this is such a winning idea. They're going to love this. And, um, we came in and, and he even said like, Oh, he's like, I've got this new intern. Hey, come in here. These guys did a great pitch last time. So I want you to take notes and and just kind of see what the pitching process looks like. So he pumped us up to her too. And so we're just like, oh, this is going to be awesome. Here we go. So we launch into the pitch. And like all the moments in a pitch, you want to construct it like a comedy routine. You have moments where people laugh and gasp. And every moment where we were expecting an emotional response, it was just kind of like, huh. Hmm. And like all these points that we thought, oh, this is going to be such a great joke. Nothing landed. And it started getting, like, the awkwardness was palpable in the room. Like, everybody was like, ah. it was like being in a bad comedy show, but we were the comedians. And he, the, the, the intern kept looking at him, and he was looking back. And so we got through it, but by the end, like, we were just like, oh, man, this is like, and so, but we tried to kind of keep up, like, um, yeah, so what do you think? And he's like, uh, yeah, well, um, I can tell it needs a lot of development and he was trying to kind of find some nice things to say and i said like well what we were going to do some more work on it why don't we we'll develop it a little more and bring it back to you guys and he just goes why don't you see if anyone else in town wants to hear it like basically right in front of it just was like no i don't ever want to see this idea again and in fairness uh to the situation it was a like very half-baked um I still think it's a really fun idea, but I think we were way too big for our britches, and that we really we had really prepared for brain fudge, and this one I think we just we we our our egos took the wheel, and we learned a valuable lesson from that uh, that pitching disaster. And right after we got out of the pitch, we were like, we need to go to Cold Stone, and we went to Cold Stone and got just huge ice creams because we felt like we just got our asses handed to us. <laughs> oh my
0: gosh! Well, okay, so. Old eccentric guy who uh, lives in a garage and has a portal to another world. Kind of sounds like Rick and Morty to me a little bit.
1: It, yeah, that's actually
0: crazy. So, I, so. <laughs> I haven't thought about that. Um, so, why do you think this pitch went so poorly? Like, if you believed in the idea, you had the confidence, what was it that, that really fell short that you would go back and change?
1: I think... Just mostly preparing would be the first thing and just never. I I remember reading an interview with Steven Spielberg when he made um, 1941. And I I think it was his first film after Jaws, but he just basically he felt like he didn't need. uh, Here's the answer. Getting good feedback and really listening to people's critiques and taking them to heart. Um, I remember reading this article and Steven Spielberg said, like, after Jaws, he felt like he was invincible. He could do anything. Everyone was going to love anything he put out. And um, 1941 was really poorly received. And he said a lot of it was he didn't take feedback. He didn't listen to critique. He felt like, no, I'm Steven Spielberg. Like, I know what I'm doing. And um, for us, that was on on the smallest scale ever. But we felt like because we had had, like, a good experience with this other pitch, we didn't – with the brain fudge pitch, we were filming ourselves every day, sending it to our friends – asking for a critique, anyone who would watch it, we'd bring in our parents and our relatives and friends and do, and we practiced and practiced and we like took notes. And with this one, we didn't do anything. We just, just jumped in blind. And
0: um, yeah, well, that's interesting. Cause like in my mind, a pitch is like you show up and you have your presentation and you just go for it. But you're saying like you filmed yourself and practiced and practiced. And maybe you didn't realize how much it changed over time, the actual pitch, because the second time around, you just had that confidence being like, we're going to do great. But yeah. if you were to redo that pitch, the Rick and Morty uh, <laughs> parallel show, you would film yourself, get critique. Like you think the idea is still there. It's just the execution that really fell flat.
1: Yes. And I think, yeah, and, and just, there's so much value in, especially if you're making a show or any kind of art or music or anything, it's like it's it, it's a conversation. It's not just you, but it's like what you're saying and then also the people listening to it. And a lot of times um, it might make total sense in your own head. And then you explain it to somebody and they go, oh, yeah, it's all about this. And it's like, wait, no, it's not. Um, I, I think it's, it's just so valuable to get feedback and um, and have it, it, it helps. It's, it's like communicating in general. It's just uh, if you totally dominate conversations and don't listen to what the other person's saying, it's going to be a one sided thing. And I think it's very for, for especially making TV movies and things like that. Just getting outside opinions. It really helps helps the idea to be like more fully formed.
0: So is, and and when you said you'd be more prepared, is that is that the only thing that you would change?
1: Um, I think given the nature of the situation, I th- like, because they, the, the reason we developed it so fast is they said, Hey, we're, t- we're taking ideas in two weeks. Um, I think in the future, if, if I didn't have an idea that I felt like, Oh, this is something I, I'm really ready with. It was a little bit, and I, I don't regret doing it because it was a little of a challenge to ourselves. Like, can we come up with something this fast and make it good? And um, I think the answer was we could come up with a good idea, make it good, maybe not so much. Um, so I, I think maybe if I had to do it again, I would, have, uh, I would have said like, hey, thanks for inviting us to pitch. We don't have anything ready at the moment, but we'd love to schedule something on your next round and then actually taking the time to develop it properly.
0: Cool, so uh, you're working on your next big pitch right now and you, and you have like a lot of experience pitching because you have five years of like commercial client work you have these other two pitches under your belt. You said you ha- hired a management company this time. So mm-hmm. can you... what What is this next pitch? Can you give the gist of it? I, I don't know if you can share the whole thing yet, but can you... Yeah, I can... A little
1: bit? Gist of it. So we have these characters that have been with the studio since the beginning, since way before even. Uh, the Time Crow is our main guy. And actually this... Um, this is the very first... This is not him. This is the clock, man. This is like... His ancestor, but this was a T-shirt uh, for for our band back in the day, and it just became our unofficial. Um, I'll figure it out later. He he became our unofficial mascot, and and we just we love this character. We love the idea of this kind of human embodiment of time, like a, a kind of weird spirit character that represents time, and so the we always we always wanted to do a project featuring him he's called the time crow so it's like it's like the idea a scarecrow scares birds away from crops that a farmer's trying to hide uh, the time crow is like he scares it's it's the concept of time that scares people like oh should i do that should i take this risk should i try that will i have enough time but then you realize it's somewhat of an illusion and it can be your he time crow can be your best friend or your worst enemy depending on how you treat him So this pitch, we came up with this idea. We're huge fans of that seven-minute animation format, the old, like, Looney Tunes shorts, the Fleischer Brothers stuff, the Mickey stuff. And something that resonated so much about those characters is it was always in a time where we were going through something difficult in the world, like the Great Depression or World War II. And Mickey and Bugs and these guys, were they were always these underdogs that, like, Bugs was just trying to live his life in his rabbit hole and eat carrots. And then, you know, Wiley Coyote or Elmer Fudd or whoever would come along with a shotgun and just, you know, mess with this whole thing. And so you through watching these underdogs triumph, it was like a kind of cathartic release. And I think that was it. I, I read a book about Disney at one point, about Mickey specifically, and it was talking about how these characters would resonate with those times. And we were realizing it's there's a general sensation that things are hard right now in the world like it's a weird time to be alive there's a lot of tension a lot of weird stuff going on but and a lot of it is mental health is like not the great depression but actual depression and it's it's we're facing a lot of really weird hard to face things and a lot of the cartoon characters um stuff that we really love even it has this really bleak feeling which I think is reflecting something a lot of us are going through. And we were like, we need a Bugs or a Mickey or somebody that can be like the champion for the underdogs in our time. And so we've formulated this series called Psycho Psalms, which is um, so Disney had silly symphonies. Warner Brothers had merry melodies. So it's very much like a, a parody slash love letter to that format where Time Crow and we, we came up with this whole cast of characters that the idea is they all were existing around the same time as Mickey and Bugs and all of them in like, say, you know, the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And they were just, it was like an unknown animation studio and nobody really knows about these characters. And Psychosalms is a bunch of shorts that take place when the characters from, the, from that time get sucked into our world. So they're facing all kinds of stuff like fake news, conspiracy theories, the pharmaceutical industry, like, All kinds of stuff that is creating polarizing conversations and confusing and making it hard to make sense of the world right now. And then they just, you know, stick a bunch of dynamite into it and blow it up. And so it's like it's like a release that that this is a for the, the same way that like when people were dealing with hunger in the Great Depression or like the crazy war with Hitler. And they'd watch these cartoons and have this kind of like empowering, healing feeling. That's what we want to do with Time Chrome, with our show.
0: And and this is all stop motion, right?
1: Yes. That's another we we wanted it to have a feeling of like being right on the border of imaginary and real. And so we wanted to take those kind of cartoon tropes and put them in an actual physical, tangible world. And that was one of the biggest, most fun challenges of coming up with the look was how. Are we going to, in stop motion, show what those old cartoons used to do in 2D?
0: Yeah, because they're like rubber hose all over the place, ridiculous stuff. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, So what are you doing this time around with the pitch that you, like, what is, what is every, can you just, like, list out everything you've prepared for this pitch? Like, you, you want this to be a success, you're going forward with this, you hired a management company, like, what, like, just give me the laundry list of everything.
1: Sure. So... I'll start with internally like what we have and what we're bringing to the table. Um, We, the most important piece and that every time we've pitched people have always said, if you can have this uh, this is going to just exponentially increase your chances of selling the show is a visual, an animated teaser that actually gives a sense for what the show will feel like. We didn't have the time or resources to do that on our last pitches um, and so we did a lot of sketches. It's not to say you can't sell a show with that plenty of amazing shows have sold with just even text, but the look was a very integral. It's a very visual show. Um, there there's minimum there's dialogue, but it's, it's more about the visual gags. And so we put a lot of time and effort into really crafting this teaser that gives a representation of what the show will feel like. Um, so that's the number one thing we bring in. And then what, one thing we had with the brain fudge pitch that we really refined over time was we made a, a really strong keynote presentation that goes along with the pitch that shows it, it flows like a story and um, it provides <clears throat> excuse me a little bit of context, like what what is this show about? What's the reason? you know, what's the why at the core of it. And then as it unfolds, we introduce characters and we introduce the look of it and some artwork and stuff. So we have a, a detailed presentation, um, that goes along with a pitch that I basically, uh, I stand next to the screen and I go through the images. And so those are the two main assets. And then we usually, we have, because we made this teaser, we built tons of puppets and we have a really beautiful set for the pitch. We bring our two favorite puppets, um, And we kind of we bring them out at the end to say, like, hey, here now you can see like these actual guys and how they look in the world. So. On it, it, that's what we bring internally, and we're still even though we're already pitching, we we're still developing. One thing we we don't have is a script. We had a script for our pilot for Brain Fudge, but for this one, because they're much more one off shorts, we have beats for every short. And so we've, we've been working more on that. And I, I do hope to, to have some more fleshed out scripts soon. That's something we're working on that we don't have at the moment.
0: Is that, is that something that in the actual pitch itself, they asked for, or is that kind of like a follow-up? Like if you're interested and want to see more stuff, we actually have a couple scripts written.
1: That's a follow-up thing. Um, when we did, like when we did Brain Fudge, we never led with the script. We always, it was a back pocket thing. And I'd say maybe half the pitches they asked, do you have a script we can look at? And so that's, it's a nice thing to follow up with. But one of the main, uh, a lot of time, to- if you have an actual, like we have this three minute piece that shows you what it, 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 what the show will feel like. So the script is not as necessary. It's, and we say with this pitch too, If you watch this teaser, you know right away if you're going to like it or not. Like, if you dig this, you're definitely going to be interested in it. If you don't like it, no amount of scripts is going to convince you to like it. It's like you get the absolute sense of, like, what this is going to feel like.
0: So can can you walk me through the entire process of, like, cold outreaching a a studio or something like that? Like, from, like, emailing somebody to showing up at the pitch to pitching? Like, what what does that entire process look like?
1: Sure. So my favorite one, our favorite cold outreach was uh, actually another massive fail. We pitched to, um, we were in Burbank, so I think it was Cartoon Network. We had done a pitch for Brain Fudge and we were driving back and we passed the Walt Disney Animation Building. And we were like, we have all the stuff ready for the pitch. Like, why don't we just go show up and see if we can pitch right now? So we literally drove into the like the gateway of the building and like the guy comes out, he's like, Hey, can I help you? I'm like, We're here to pitch an animated series. And he goes, Oh, okay, who do you have a meeting with? And we're like, We don't have a meeting, we just have all the materials ready to go. And we just we just love to pitch to whoever will hear it. And the guy was just like, Are you crazy? Like, that's not how it works. You can't just da 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 da, da. and it was pretty funny rather than just ask us to leave. He like, he got pretty mad. Um, which it was really funny and actually made the whole, the whole experience a lot better for us. And we were joking, like what we need to do is get like, like outfits, like we're the cleaning guys and then come in with like, or all dress like a cleaning guy, come in with a thing of linens and you'll hide in there and we'll have all the pitch stuff hidden in the cart. We never actually did that, of course, but that I tell that story because it, it, there's, there's almost no standard to, um, to finding people to pitch to. It really was like, at, when, when we didn't, hadn't built that network yet, it was like, whatever we can do to make the connections. But a lot of times, um, I, I would ask to I'd say for anyone out there who's a student, ask your school for resources. Because that once CalArts, once some of my teachers and uh, mentors knew that I was trying to pitch, they helped. They kept their ear to the ground, and like when they heard, like, oh, so and so is looking for a show, they would give us some info. But so the process, like, um, the one, the one at Cartoon Network, I, I met this woman at at the CalArts showcase. She gave me her card, and we just talked about. I, I I gave her one thing that's really important. I'm I'm sure you all know the phrase, but is an elevator pitch, where you have like your basic like in two sentences you can get the gist of the idea across and that's really important to have consistently in your head because when i met this woman i i said oh yeah uh she asked me what's the show about and so i gave her this two sentence description and she said that sounds really interesting gave me the card and so i basically went home and right away i I, it's always finding the sweet spot like you don't want to get on your phone and email them while you're in the bathroom two minutes later because then it's like okay why are they so antsy but you don't want to let a few days go by, you know, and they forget about you. My general rule of thumb is usually the next day, two days max. But I usually wait one day and just say like, hey, it was awesome to meet you yesterday. I'm David. If you remember, we talked at the at the showcase and I mentioned I have this show. Um, I'd, I'd love to set up a time that I can talk to you about it. So I send that email to her and then um, she responds a day or two later. And one thing I'd say as an encouragement to everyone that uh, a mistake I learned the hard way if you don't get a response in the first day or two, it, don't worry. They're so busy, and I used to feel like, oh, they, I need to keep emailing and keep emailing. You should. You should be persistent, but think of it almost as like when you're like dating someone, you're just starting to like each other, and you don't want to come on too strong, but you also don't want to not be around. There's, there's no scientific answer, but I would say just don't ever take it personally. If they're not getting back to you right away, it takes some time. Um, and I think I, I probably blew some connections by being too antsy and just like, when can we set something up? And then you know, they're so busy and it's like, this person's going to send me a message every day. I don't have time for this and just respect their time is what I'd say, but also be persistent. So we probably exchanged a few emails and then set up a time and she's like, okay, I, here's my the, the people that you'll talk to. Um, and then, and it's funny because I'm, I'm used to it now that I've done so many, but the first time, um, I would say if you have the chance, try to get a tour of a, of a big studio before you pitch at one because I hadn't really toured any big studios. And so I remember walking into like cartoon network and it's just like, you know, driving from my little apartment in Glendale. And then it's like just this huge glorious palace of animation. And it feels so like, intimidating and scary at first and um i think uh i think it's it now after that first time i go and i kind of know what to expect and i feel a lot more comfortable but being comfortable in a pitch is is so key because in a lot of ways beyond just the idea you're you're selling this person on like on you and your ability to create and if they pick up their pitch your pitch they're gonna work with you maybe for years and so if you're really like anxious or nervous or you come on too strong, it might be like, okay, I don't know if this, even if they like the idea that could turn somebody off. I think it's just, it's so much nicer and comfortable. Um, And I'd say this from the other end too, is like now that I have a studio and when I hire people, it's like, it's being able to work with people that you can just relax and be yourself with people really appreciate that. So I always keep that in mind. And it's just like, be a little bit selfish, be do what it takes to make you feel comfortable. Don't feel like you need to please them or do everything. It's just like, if you if you want a glass of water and say, Hey, I'm going to grab a glass of water or whatever, you know, just get in a good zone and um, they'll appreciate that because then that will put them at ease too. And I, I think that my most successful pitches have been when I wasn't trying to prove something or oversell it, but just like, just feeling comfortable and being excited about the idea. So anyway, I'm going into all kinds of tangents, but basically to finish up the question, exchange a few emails, we set up a meeting and actually the Cartoon Network one, because what you're really going for in your first pitch, usually you're dealing with somebody, they cast a very wide net where they're looking for, you know, say if their goal is to, to find one show, they might connect with 20 different creators and like find 20 people, and like, hey, come and tell us your idea. And then they'll be the first sort of line that you talk to at the studio. And if they like the idea, then they'll say, hey, I want to set up a meeting with my boss. And so then usually maybe they'll pick five out of those 20, and then you go with them to the next person up, and then that person might pick two. And then you go to the top level and pitch and to the decision maker who picks a show. So with this Cartoon Network one, we actually – we got through to the second level this this lady that we pitched to loved the show and said i'm i'm very interested in brain fudge um i'm i'm gonna talk to my supervisor and i'd love to schedule a second pitch so if you've ever been and done like a high school play or something like that it's very much like auditioning so i i remember we went back and it was another one of those we're like when are they gonna write to us and trying to keep just enough contact um and they called us back and we went and, and, and So we got another email, and then we went maybe a week, maybe two weeks later, and we met with her supervisor. And that pitch um, was the one that the guy said, like, this is a really cool idea, but I'm really looking for X, and this idea is Y. It doesn't fit the format we're looking for right now, but uh, we'd love to hear another idea in the future.
0: Would Would you change anything in the pitch between those two contact points?
1: what do you mean like about the content or how yeah would
0: you would you be would you look at the reactions and think okay this part didn't get such a good reaction so i'm actually gonna i don't know add a new character or add some other element or something like that to make it a little better or would you play it safe and do the exact same pitch the second time i
1: everybody's different for me we do that regardless like we are meticulous at um at archiving information like every pitch we do immediately after even when we're practicing it and right now like with our pitch every single day at five o'clock in the studio we run through the pitch and anyone who's in the studio we invite them to listen to it and give us notes and we are constantly refining it and making it better and better and every especially in a pitch if if like the one i told you that was a train wreck there were all these jokes that we thought were going to hit and they didn't hit and so we really keep note like if that joke didn't hit, or this character is not being received well, we it's we always maintain the integrity of the idea. Like we don't want to change, you know, the idea, but the way that the stuff's presented. If if it's like if I'm describing it this way and it's working really well, we might amp that up. And if there's something that we thought was funny but generally isn't getting a laugh, we might take that out or change the joke. Um, as far as to the question of having it be different at the different levels. That's a good question. I, I, for me, it would be more just refining the pitch a little bit more. Um, but I would say with all this in mind, there's also no formula for there's like in our current pitch, we have a bunch of jokes in it and there's like one of one joke. Every time we say it in the pitch, the whole room laughs. We did one. And nobody laughed, but they've laughed at all these other jokes, but that one they didn't think was funny. And so it's also really good. I, I think it's a numbers game. And that's one reason we do it to as many people as possible, because not everybody thinks the same thing is funny. So we like to get more of a wide view. Um, but it's important to be ready. Like if and also if anything technically goes wrong, if you forget your line or you forget what you're going to say, just be ready to always keep going. Because the poison, pitch poison, is if you stop and you freeze and you don't know what to say or keep going. And, like, that was something I had to break from early on when we'd have, like, our jokes constructed, and I'd usually pause for a laugh, and then we'd do one, and if people didn't laugh, I'd be a little bit deer in the headlights, like, oh, they didn't laugh. But so you, you just learned through refinement to not be ready for a laugh, but don't expect it. And if they don't laugh, you just – right into the next thing don't even give them time to think about like oh i didn't think that was very funny like and if they do laugh then you can and sometimes if they think something's really funny you're also making mental notes for the q a after because usually you do your presentation and then if they the longer they keep you the better it is so they'll usually you'll do a big question and answer session and um if if you made mental notes like Oh, they really thought that like the purple spaghetti joke was funny. Like, like yeah, that purple spaghetti. Like, call that back when you're doing the Q and A. Like, think about the things that are appealing to them because they're the, they're the one cons- they're going to make the decision if they're going to invest in this or not. And so, if you can can show them that like you can make something that they're going to be excited about and feel feel confident about, that's just a huge win for you.
0: So, so what are some of the harder things that they ask you in that Q and A? Like, what's the what are what's a dreaded question I could ask you? Uh,
1: big a big one is that is uh, how much is this going to cost? A lot of times they say what does an episode cost? How much does a minute cost? And I would the best thing to do do your research based on what kind of animation you're going to do, find the answer and just say it directly. We used to get really like. I think because we came from a place of making these videos in our garage and we didn't have big budgets. And when we would work with clients, we, they didn't have big budgets. We would be really timid about like, well, we could really find ways to do this or that. They're just looking for a bottom line. Like it's going to be a hundred million dollars a minute. Like, okay, cool. You know? And they're always excited to hear that number.
0: So how, uh, how do you figure out that number?
1: For me, the way a lot of this stuff you can look online, like, um, a lot of shows, you can find articles that will say how much they cost an episode. Uh, like, for example, the, the Shivering Truth is a stop-motion show on, on Adult Swim. And there's an article about it. They had $400,000 an episode. It's, it's open knowledge. And, like, I think The Simpsons at one point was, like, a million dollars an episode. Right. Uh, for us, we figure out, like, based on... We just do a rough estimate of, like, how many sets, how many puppets, what's a comparable show that has that amount of sets and puppets in it And then we look for as many articles on that as we can, or try to find a few comparable shows.
0: I'm going to have to look at that article now, because The Shivering Truth is a ridiculous stop-motion show everybody should go watch. But $400,000 is uh, a lot of money. Wow.
1: Yeah, and that's on the less expensive side.
0: Yeah, but but I thought it would almost be more, because stop-motion needs all these sets and, and everything. So, surprising.
1: It, it it is. It's like um, just and a huge shout out here to the team at the Shivering Truth. Kat Solon, the director. Uh, Jave and Ivy, one of our friends. Who, if you get the chance, uh, I'll connect you with Jave, and you should you should get him on a podcast uh, about just stop motion wizardry. Cludging is what I think we call it when you just make something happen with no resources. He's a brilliant, brilliant, uh, mad scientist genius guy. But um, I think he's a big part of that. Like they they did a phenomenal job at making that budget look like so much more. Um, it's very impressive.
0: So, what are some of the other business related questions they ask other than the oh, bottom yeah. and what's it going to cost? Like, who's managing they, it? Who's coming? Who, where are you hiring people? Who's this being outsourced to? Do they ask all those things in the? No, pitch? not
1: so much. But I think one thing that they do. They they if you don't include they will ask our comps like what is this show like what what are because usually you're, they're thinking about it from a business perspective like I need to get a show that I want to get something I'm excited about but I'm going to invest millions of dollars or my company's going to and you know I'm on the line for this decision I want to know like okay oh you're making this like uh, it's it's going to be. A character drama but with like really crazy cartoon characters like and like Bojack Horseman it's like it's really colorful on the surface it looks like this colorful crazy Hanna-Barbera cartoon but then it's this deep adult character drama if you can point to those things that really helps them paint a picture of um, of whether they feel like they can find a home for this and and uh, that was something earlier on it's almost like if you're in a band and they're like what band do you sound like every band wants to think no band sounds like my band. I like the most. We're just our sound, but it's not an insulting question um, for them. It's like if it's a record label, it's like we know that people that like like our label enjoy these kinds of music. So we want to know what we what could be comparable. And I used to shy away more from that question when they'd ask. I felt almost like it's a trap. Like, oh, are they asking what I'm in? What are we um, imitating? But it's it's so they can get a picture of of where they can find the best home for your show so that i think um that used to be a dreaded question for me and now we really think with that in mind first so we really think through what would our budgets be what are similar shows and also if you can just talk a little bit about that like yeah our show is a lot like rick and morty and uh, you know rick and morty started as this like single show on adult swim but now they just got renewed for 70 episodes like if you can talk a little bit about and their audiences love comic books and like we actually are super influenced by comic books. That's a big part about what we do. I think um, that that's a super helpful thing to be prepared with, because if you don't have that in the pitch, you'll probably get asked about it.
0: Oh. Hmm. I, I mean, well, thank you so much for sharing all this pitch stuff. Uh, I, I also am curious as to how you kind of ended up in this place. So maybe we can switch gears a little bit and talk more about Open the Portal as a studio. So, out of school, you started pitching and then you started picking up freelance work to pay the bills and then that freelance work turned into a full-fledged studio for the next five years, right? So yeah. can, you, can you share that that journey and experience too and, and how you... Because I know you built up all that commercial work but now you're just scaling back to work on pitches. It's like you're coming full circle all over again.
1: Yeah. Um, I think this... Basically... At the beginning, our goal was that we're going to be we're going to be 50 50 Um, because we really wanted to make our own ideas. But we weren't really interested in developing an idea just to sell like, okay, let's like what are people buying right now? Let's make that we really wanted to do stuff we were already passionate about. And so we figured the best way to do that is if we can self fund projects and you know we'd still want to work with a studio like like pitch things but if we can self-fund the initial thing that could help us really get our foot in the door so we when we were we were still in the apartment um we would just like like i mentioned we our first projects were uh, my cousin's pizza place uh we reached out to an independent beer brewing company coffee places just and we basically knocked on doors and said hey we, we have these skills, we want to make something, and we're willing to do it for, you know, work with whatever budget you have at the moment. Like, we would mostly be doing Instagram content and stuff like that, like for this beer company. They're like, well, we want to do an Instagram video, we've got 3000 bucks, which that kind of budget doesn't stretch very far with stop motion. But for us, it was like, um, it, it didn't, we, we were more just trying to build up our experience because we want, we, we couldn't go to bigger companies because we didn't have a resume. So once we got those under our belt and we had a few little things, we also did a few spec projects. Like we reached out to some companies and said, hey, can we make something and you decide if you want to use it or not? If you don't, can we use it in our resume? And so we built like a library of projects that way. And then we started sending those out to slightly bigger companies. And so our first projects we were getting budgets of like $1,000 to $3,000. And then we could start targeting like five to $10,000 ones. Also from uh, Barrett and my connections from our band days, we connected with a lot of old musicians and people at record labels. And then we were able to, we got a, uh, a really good job doing a music video for Haji, one of the rappers in Odd Future. And, um, and that, that was also through a classmate at CalArts who was friends with him. But um, once, so it was just basically convincing people to trust us to do these projects, and then every, every one was a chance that we could kind of prove, we can pull this off, we can pull this off, and then like slowly leveling up. Um, and I also, I was working a lot as a freelance animator, and we had an opportunity, I got hired. So before before we did Open the Portal, we were essentially just doing our own freelance jobs. And even everybody at Open the Portal now are all individual freelance animators that have a lot of them have their own studios. Uh, Kong Kim, who we work with a lot, has Studio Zazak. Um, Nick Diagostino has Pox Films. Kiki Rivera has Acho Studio. But so we all had our own thing, and I was working a lot as an animator on commercials and had the chance to work with Pez, who is just one of our, our all-time heroes in animation. We loved his films, and even just to get the chance to meet him was incredible. And then being able to work on a Pez project was a huge dream come true. So... Working on that was also able, like we were able to start showing people like, hey, like we've made these commercials and also like we've helped on these ones, like I've animated on this commercial or that one. And um, one huge word of advice I would give to anyone um, out there who's an independent or freelance animator or has a studio, always be very, very careful about how you present your work. Um, The commercials that I worked on with Pez, we presented sometimes like to clients along with the other work, like this is a commercial we worked on. And it ended up at appearing, I think, that it was, per, it felt like we were taking credit for doing the commercial. Some clients had saw it, that we were presenting it that way, which wasn't our intention, but it ended up, we really respect Pez. And I think going from that gray area of me animating personally to being a studio, we didn't present it the best way possible on our website. And I also, if uh, Pez is out there listening or watching for any reason, dude, you're the man. And uh, I want to personally apologize for anything that was ever misconstrued in our work that way. Um, And we hope to work with him again one day. We, we just love Pez's work, but that, that having just that resume and people knowing like, okay, these guys have, they've created cool commercials. They've worked on cool commercials. They, they've, um, a lot of our spec work, our music videos, all of those things, we were able to start finding clients that would trust us with slightly bigger things. And then people that we had worked with before, um, there's an amazing ad agency uh, called Brand New School and, and Production Company. We had done a, a Barbie video with them where we just came on as the animation, like basically it was just me animating at first. And then we brought in a team to help them flesh it out. And once they started seeing our capabilities, doing bigger and bigger projects, they started bringing us on to be the production house, like for this entire um, for entire project. So we we did a whole campaign with them where they were the directors, but they brought they let like open the portals. Job was to take the idea and assemble the entire team, and that was one of the projects I mentioned that um, this studio space wasn't even big enough for, and we ended up having to rent. A place where we could get I think we had like 15 stages going and a whole bunch of animators so that was maybe we hit the sweet spot with that about one or two years ago and we've we found a really great sustainability with that but that was also when we were realizing it takes so much energy to sustain this that we don't really have the time to develop our own IP and that, that was also around the time we took Brain Fudge out a second time because we're like we want to pitch something but we don't have um, a new idea like we don't have enough time to develop a new idea from scratch so let's build on this pitch um, so that experience which was also it was great but it just it led us to really realize we need to pick one or the other either we need to focus on being a production house um, that executes projects for clients or we need to be, like, a creative development studio. And from the beginning, that was always our goal, that we wanted to develop our own ideas. And so so it was maybe around a year ago we really started considering the shift, and it's only really taken hold this year that uh, I think we announced it officially about two months ago, but that, like, Open the Portal is now focused on uh, creating our own stuff. One more note I, I wanted to make on... Um, when I was explaining kind of how we got to where, like how we got to where we are with like the level of jobs increasing, we took some jobs that were very low paying. But it's I, it's very important that not to underbid yourself. That's like been a big problem in a lot of freelance work. Is people bidding really low to get a job that like my everyone knows good and well. It's like that job's going to take twenty thousand dollars. And then a bunch of people like oh i can do if we do five thousand we'll get our foot in the door i wanted to be very clear that i'm not advocating for that we were we were taking jobs that were coming to us like we have a thousand or two thousand dollars um but i think it's it's very important to value yourself well and you'll get much more respect from your clients um, and anyone you work with if, if you really are just honest and upfront with how much time the animation is going to take and what it's going to cost so That'd be a big encouragement I'd give to anybody that's doing freelance stuff, Um, and I I just wanted to make that distinction. That it's like it's it's definitely worth taking low paying jobs when you're getting started, and and even at any time, but uh, not charging less for a job that should be more. Definitely value yourself well.
0: I I was going to ask about that because I'm trying to figure out how to do some freelance for stop motion right now because I don't really have a giant resume of stop motion either. That's that's what I'm looking at doing right now. So thanks. Um, So right now, the state of open the portal is uh, all of your resources are going towards pitching. Mm -hmm. And then once you get a pitch greenlit, then what happens
1: when we get a pitch greenlit? So our our vision, what we'd like to do is treat this place as the brain of the show um, where we would basically what we did with the teaser we made, uh, we would do on the level of the whole show. So we get our dream team together and a, a really tight team. We like to keep things very tight here, uh, very, a very small core, but get our dream team together to develop the look and the mannerisms and like all the aesthetics of the show. I mentioned to you earlier before we were recording um, if you look up online, the King of the Hill. Uh, model sheet or show bible I, I think it's the model sheet but t- t- one of the animators published it it's this extensive document that shows like how Dale's cigarette hangs and like don't make Peggy too sexy and like all these guidelines but they go into super detail and that's what keeps the show the the, the, the movement so important that the characters move the way they're supposed to it's like if you watch Looney Tunes on mute you can tell like the displacement activities of Bugs or Daffy or Wiley, like how nervous is this character? How uh, confident is this character? And so we would, we would, that's the part we're really interested in working on. We, one thing that's different, we used to have a vision to be more like, um, like a Stupid Buddy or a Starburns, these big studios that they come up with the idea and they also are, are big production studios that execute the idea. Our interest is a lot more in that the specific kind of like brains behind the show, like and behind the characters and kind of their psychology, figuring out how they're going to move and act and not so much that like we want to produce everything in house, um, because it, it's interesting. It's amazing. I mean, I, like having been on on in I, I've, I've had roles as an animator, a fabricator, a producer all over the map, even post-production. It's all really fascinating, but it all takes a lot of energy and we were finding that when in managing the big commercial projects, our skill set was spread so thin. And so we really what, what would ideally happen if we got greenlit is we would focus here our energy on really stapling down like the psychological attributes of the characters, how they're going to move and act, how everything's going to look. And then we would probably work with a studio like a Starburns or um, someone that that. Uh, screen novelties would be another dream for us. They're some great friends. and We love their work. But we work with another animation studio and, and do the production there.
0: So do you think you had to go through everything you kind of went through with the commercial work and the pitching, et cetera, to get back to this state? Or do you think you could have done this from the start?
1: I, th- we could have. There's no set path to this kind of thing. I, I do believe. We could have done it from the start, but I think it would have been a much harder battle. I'm very grateful to have had the experience and the ups and downs of learning the ins and outs of the animation industry and how to do these productions through commercials rather than through our own work. Because I think we could have done it, but if if we just if we had gotten a show greenlit early on, we could have figured it out. But I think there would have it would have been a pretty rough process. And I mean. I'm still anticipating that when we get a show, there's going to be so much to learn. But we are so much more comfortable now with the process as it relates to uh, working with a team versus just when it was, you know, two or three of us in an apartment. So I'm very grateful for the experience and I'm happy that it's gone that way. Um, But I I think it could have been possible the other way around. It just it just would have been a lot of work.
0: So uh, going forward with this new kind of business model or I guess, what is the business model? Is it you sell a show and retain royalties and that's how you sustain yourself for the next pitch? Or what, what would it be like?
1: That, that would be the idea. Um, our hope is to pitch two to three shows a year, um, regardless of whether we have a show in production or not. We have a whole bank of ideas that we want to get out there. And we've, we've timed out, we, we made like a loose plan based on how long this teaser took. Um, and we're, to say like what what would it take to get because even for for this pitch we have more than we need um because this was such a passionate project for us we have like all our characters in it i i would say you only need and this is my opinion but you only need a solid minute of animation to bring to a pitch we did three minutes um because we just got out of control and we're having so much fun making this stuff but um we cut, we, we built a system where it's like, okay, what would it take to make one minute, uh, to put together, um, a pitch package with, with a nice PDF, a presentation, some artwork and enough to get the idea across in the room. And we figured out like a a reasonable budget for that and a reasonable, um, timeline. And so it's, we, we basically between four and six months and what our model is like our, our, our hope is to get a show and then to be able to completely sustain that ourselves. Um, if we don't have a show, we've met with a few different investors and people that are very interested in what Open the Portal does. And so we would probably cut individual deals with different investors to say, hey, we're going to take this idea out and then work out some kind of percentage deal with them where they put up the money for us to spend the four months putting the pitch together. And it's kind of a staggered system where it's like, the, say, you know, we do a pitch in the spring. We'll be pitching that in summer while we're developing the pitch for the fall. And so it's like there's, you know, that's the the vision for, for us is to always have that kind of a rollout plan.
0: I love that. I feel like you have found kind of a sweet spot of working on your own work sustainably, because a lot of people that I talk to, whether they're working at a studio or somewhere else, they always have that idea that they want to work on in the back of their mind that they have put off for a very long time because they... Haven't been able to find the time, so I, I like that a lot. And uh, and your journey is pretty interesting. Um, what is what is next for you personally? So you have this business, you're pitching. What what's next for you? Like ten years from now, where are you going to be at?
1: Um, I, there, I, I'm like at, at the beginning. You read the description of our studio, which is kind of our new description we have, but that it's like we explore the dark side of, anim- of the dark side of imagination with a hopeful, positive outlook. That's kind of the core of all of the different ideas that I like to work with. And I'm as much as stop motion is my favorite medium. Um, I'm, we're really interested in experiential stuff. Like we've made parties where there's there's individual rooms you go into and you have like a kind of it's almost like a DIY Disneyland, we call it. But you go through these experiences. We're really into that. I actually have a couple ideas for live action movies I'd love to shoot. I love traveling. I I love LA. It's so nice living here, but I want to go all over the world. I'd love to shoot projects in other countries. And um, for me, I think 10 years from now, I hope to have enough consistency and open the portal here that I'm able to travel around and like maybe spend you know a year in Europe doing a project or go to Japan or something like that. So... Uh, I'm really interested in exploring, and outside of all of this, I'm actually very interested in psychology lately. For some reason, I don't know why. It's kind of fun that our show is called Psychosalm, so it has psychology built into it a little. But um, I, I'm inter- I don't know where the crossover is, but there's a degree I, I'd like to find some way to connect the creative work with actual psychology and kind of. I, I'm really interested in things that the That uh, psychology is learning about the way we think in our interior lives now so I don't know what but something with psychology
0: (laughs) (laughs) nice I like it a lot and and that's a really ambitious dream to have to travel the world and still film stuff that's awesome um so maybe let's just wrap things up a little bit uh one final question you know do you have any final thoughts for someone perhaps who wants to pitch out of college or pitch from a studio or something like that
1: I would my my biggest piece of advice would be um get i'm trying to think of like the most positive way to say it um the sooner you can let go of your ego the better uh you'll you'll make progress in leaps and bounds if hold on to your passion as hard as you can but don't be so precious and personal about it and i'm i'm saying that because that's how i was at the beginning where it was like i can't this is going to be exactly the way it is Listen to everybody. Like talk. It's it's you'll learn so much more if you're open to feedback and critique, and if you can like consider that for a minute. Somebody might have a way better idea than you do, and um, that through making that shift, um, you'll also be much more fun to collaborate with. People will like working with you more. So I would say, um, and it's it's hard to tell sometimes for yourself how much of a weight that is on you. Only other people can tell you, but. I would, you know, get, show your stuff to people, let them critique it. And just listen, I, I, I used to always like, Hey, can you critique this? And then someone would go, I don't really like that part. And I'd be like, well, here's why I did it. And then I'm defending it. And it's like, why did I even ask them to critique it then? It's like, listen, you don't have to agree, but, um, let go of the ego. And then your I think your true stuff can shine through in the best way possible.
0: Definitely. Yeah. That's good advice. There's a, there's a literary term called killing your darlings that, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Do you have anything else you want to share or anything at all? Um, I think uh, I would end
1: with the, the expansion on the Kill Your Darlings. Let's see. Barrett, who is one of our co-owners and he does all of our sound, um, he always uses this phrase, create like a child, edit like a scientist, detach like a warrior. And I think <laughs> that sums it up. When you're creating, be as completely open, anything goes as possible. When you're editing, be completely methodical. And then when it's time to let go, kill your darlings.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like that. I'm going to use that. That's great.
1: <laughs> cool, man. Uh,
0: well, thank you so much, David. It's been a really great pleasure having you on the podcast and uh, great meeting you too.
1: You're welcome. Thank you, Terry. And uh, for anyone out there who would like to see our shorter teaser, we're not able to share it publicly, but uh, Terry will give you the info. Send us an email and we would love to share the private link with you.
0: Yeah. And if if you're listening and you want to get in touch with David or see the teaser or follow him on Instagram or perhaps even buy his pitch that he gave in the description earlier, uh, you can reach him at David at OpenThePortal.com. Um, And Open the Portal is also their Instagram name. Or if you're interested in actually working with Open the Portal um, or, you know, sometimes they take internships. If you're looking into that, you can reach them at hello at OpenThePortal.com. And that is all for now. Thank you for listening. Okay, bye.